The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon. I am Sheila Murthy president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm so honored to have each of you joining us this afternoon for our monthly teleconference series. Today's topic is impact of the Department of State Visa Bulletin on the movement of priority dates. So whether you're an employer or an employee or a family member, this is extremely important for you. Joining me for today's teleconference are my esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Aaron Finkelstein, the managing attorney who's been with the firm almost like 25 years, most of the journey, and Kanya Sanders, who's also been with us for a really long time uh, uh, and who's the coordinator of the non-immigrant department and a member of the Murthy Law Firm. So just by way of background and introduction, as most of you know, an important consideration for many employers who hire employees on non-immigrant visas, whether it's the H1, L1, or even F1 OPT students, is the possibility or the request, very likely possibility of applying for their green cards because they need that. And so this obviously is an important factor to attract and retain your best employees. And for the vast number of green card applicants who are born in a country like India, the green card process is an additional longer and even more frustrating wait. Because U.S. immigration law has limits on the number of employment-based green cards that can be issued for each country each year, and each fiscal year starts October 1st for the USCIS, it's only limited to 7% of the absolute total immigrant visa numbers available, right? So applicants from countries like India and China will end up possibly waiting for decades to actually receive the approval of their permanent residence. Also, as you may be aware, issuance of green cards is based on the U.S. Department of State's Department of State Visa Bulletin, which is released on a monthly basis around the middle of each month. So first applying for permanent resident receives a priority date, which is normally the date when the labor certification is filed with the Department of Labor or if it's just an I-140, like an NIW or, a, you know, where there's no labor cert, then it's the date the I-140 petition is filed. But basically... The Department of State Visa Bulletin provides a list of the priority dates, the movement of the priority dates. There's something called date of filing, final action date, which we'll discuss in just a minute. And so with that very brief background, I am going to invite Aaron Finkelstein to jump in and talk a little bit, uh, give us additional background on the priority date movement that has been occurring over the past year since October of 2022, so that we can put into context what's going on with the October 2023 visa bulletin. Aaron, take it away. Sure. Well, as people who are born in India and are on H-1B know um, that when they're pursuing a green card, they become accustomed to a very slow, almost glacial movement of the Indian priority dates because of the enormous backlog in India's EB-2 and EB-3 categories. Um, However, in 2022, due to the near shutdown of the U.S. embassies abroad as because of COVID, because of the pandemic, a huge number of the family-based case green card petitions went unused. 
And by law, what happens to these unused numbers are they're transferred over to the employment-based green card queue, and they go through the rest of the world, and then they ultimately result in going to the countries that are backlogged. The result, result was an unexpected influx of additional employment-based green cards into the pool of issuance, especially for um, India and for China. Between October of 2020 and March of 2021, the priority dates for India nationals rapidly advanced both the employment-based EB2 and EB3 categories. What this did was it permitted many persons in the U.S. who had been waiting for years to be able to finally file their application for I-45 um, and potentially to adjust status. However, the tide did change. Everything changed in 2022 when the conflicts abroad began again to resume normal operations and family-based immigrant visas began to be issued again. Uh, the employment-based categories lost access to the surplus of the family-based visas, and as a result of that, the employment-based priority dates rest retrogressed to resemble pre-July 2021 uh, priority dates for both EB2 and the EB3 categories. The priority dates have continued to retrogress in 2023, with even the EB1 India dates becoming a, a, becoming a casualty of this retrogression, going back considerably. That was, there was hope that the October 2023 visa bulletin, we would see advancement in the priority dates, but October 2023, we did, we did see some advancement, but not to the extent that we were anticipating. Okay, thank you very much, Aaron. Um, so let's then jump into the entire the October 2023 visa bulletin, which is for this month, um, and what it means and what the movement has been. And so, Kanya, I'm going to invite you. And Kanya Sanders, as I said, is the uh, uh, very senior attorney as well. And so she's going to discuss that. Kanya? Thank you, Sheila. So, yes, so in September, in middle of September, the U.S. Department of State released the October 2023 visa bulletin, which is the first visa bulletin for the fiscal year 2024. This month's visa bulletin also includes some short-term predictions. So how did the visa numbers advance? So the cutoff date in the final action chart for the family-based categories unfortunately retrogressed even further from the September 2023 visa bulletin. One can predict from this that the movement in the family-based priority date is going to be limited for fiscal year 2024. However, the employment-based EB1, EB2, and EB3 visa categories saw a welcome movement forward. EB1 dates moved from January 1, 2012 to January 1, 2017, which is five years, which is great. EB2 from January 1, 2011 to January 1, 2012, not very good, but not bad. And EB3 from January 1, 2009 to May 1, 2012. Now, although this movement is in the right direction, it unfortunately does not open up significant opportunities to file adjustment of status applications or apply for an immigrant visa overseas for those who are not able to file the applications for the green card in 2020 or 2021 because the priority dates are almost similar to those and, and most people had already filed their applications during that time. And so I think the next 
point of discussion which would be helpful for most of you all to understand uh, while we are describing movement priority dates is this whole thing that was started just a few years ago, the difference between the final action date chart and the dates of filing chart. For those of us who have been practicing for years, you'll know that until a few years ago, there was only one chart, and this caused additional problems. So the U.S. Department of State decided they were going to do two different charts to make it a little bit easier so as dates were moving, people would be able to file earlier. So what is the exact difference? Well, the final action date chart shows the priority date for which a visa is actually, an immigrant visa is actually available, right? This means the application for adjustment of status or 485 for you or your employees can be approved during that month or any month that the priority date remains current under the final action date chart. So for that date and all dates before that date. The priority dates indicate, indicated in the dates of filing chart do not have an immigrant visa number immediately available. However, the good news is that you can actually file your 485 adjustment of status with the EAD and AP, which itself is a huge, big benefit um, for most people. And so uh, it is anticipated that visas will become available in the near future. And that this, as I said, the USCIS then permits the person to file the 485 with these ancillary benefits based on the date of filing to do preliminary processing and have the case ready to approve when the priority date becomes current according to the final action date chart. And based on the USCIS workloads, USCIS will sort of continue to you know, move and give us those differing dates, I guess. So with that, I'm going to invite Aaron to maybe talk a little bit about when can one file the I-485 adjustment of status application, and then Kanya will talk about aging our children. But we'll jump to Aaron and then do the, have Aaron uh, Kanya jump in. Aaron? Yes, of course. And I'm keeping with the theme, of course, of discussing family and employment-based categories. There is a third category immediate relative that this doesn't apply to. But in general, one can file an I-485 application for adjustment of status if you're in the U.S. in a valid non-immigrant visa status. Uh, also, in the month that your priority date is current, in the final action date's chart. And that works whether it's family-based or employment-based, unless the USCIS does a separate announcement that tells you specifically that you can use the dates of filing chart to file your application for adjustment of status. For the past several months, USCIS has permitted family-based applicants to file adjustment of status application based on the uh, filing charts, but not for the employment-based applications. Occasionally, USCIS does permit the filings of adjustment of status applicants using the dates of filing charts for employment categories as well. Uh, but overall, they primarily focus the filing dates for the family-based cases. Thank you, Aaron. Next question, can aging out children file based on the dates of filing chart and be protected under CISPA, the Child Status Protection Act? And Kanye, I'm going to invite you to talk a little bit about that. Thank you, Sheila. Yeah, there has been like a significant moment in this area. In October and November of 2020, when USCIS permitted employment-based applicants to file based on the dates of filing chart, 
they rejected adjustment of status applications filed by aging out children. And they also discouraged aging out children from filing based on the filing chart. The legal basis for USCIS action was challenged by applicants. So subsequently, USCIS reversed its position and permitted those whose applications were rejected to resubmit their application. Now, thankfully, it is established policy that an aging out child qualifies for CSPA protection if an adjustment of status application is filed even based on the dates of filing chart. However, this applies only if USCIS permits the filing of adjustment of status application based on the dates of filing chart. If USCIS does not permit, then the final action date chart will determine CSPA qualification. Please note, however, that this does not apply if a green card case is processed at a consular post overseas then CSPA only applies based on the final action date chart. Thank you, Kanya. Uh, so, yes, CSPA and the children is a big, big deal, I, and a lot of parents, understandably, uh, and the children and their families are very, very concerned because a big part of why they move or relocate to the United States is because they feel like they can offer additional opportunities for their children to have better lives. So the next issue that I'm going to briefly talk about is the impact of retrogression um, of the final action dates, what happens to the children if they're in danger of aging out, if they have the pending 485 application. And as we just heard, like if a dependent child 485 has been filed based on the cutoff date in the final action charge being current and the child was under 21 at that time, then the child is generally you know, supposed to be completely protected from being considered aged out. This is true even if the priority date later ends up being retrogressed. The child's age on the first day of the month that the final action date becomes current is frozen on that age under CISPA, provided the I-485 application has been filed when the final action date was current. So we know that in calculating whether the child is under 21, on the first day of the month that the final action date becomes current, the number of days that it took the USCIS to adjudicate the I-140 petition is subtracted or deducted from the child's age. So if the principal has multiple approved I-140s, only that particular I-140 that forms the basis of the 485 that is used, that is used then to calculate whether the child remains under 21 according to CISPA. And as we discussed earlier, if USCIS permits applicants to file their adjustment based on the dates of filing charge, which Tanya just talked about, then the calculation will be based on the child's age on the first day of the month for the date of filing chart. So I know it's a little bit, can get a little bit confusing here, but hopefully you have your company lawyer or individual, or if not, certainly use multi-law firm because we do a lot of these CISPA-related cases. Um, but the next issue that I think it's important to touch upon is what happens when the principal beneficiary's 485 application is, ends up getting approved before retrogression, but not the dependent family members because we are seeing more and more of this where the spouse or the children and the files are separated for some reason. So, Aaron, maybe you could touch upon this issue? Sure. I actually see this quite often. I've, I've received several consultation phone calls. I've seen this from our clients 
Um, even if the principal gets their adjustment of status applicant, the spouse and the children, their applications, they're still derivative beneficiaries. And as beneficiaries, their cases still remain pending. So they have the benefit of the 45 pending. They still remain in a period of authorized stay. They still need the work authorization to work and advanced parole to be able to travel back and forth. The only real significant change that they're going to see is that if they were trying to maintain H-1B or L-1 or H-4, excuse me, H-4 derivative status or L-2 derivative status or any other derivative status, once the principal adjusts the derivative status, in other words, the L-2 or the H-4 or any visa that they were holding as a derivative, as a spouse or child of a principal um, person in a non-immigrant visa category, that would go away. So they would only, in essence, be relying on the period of authorized stay with the 45 pending and the EAD for the work authorization and the 131, the 512L, the advanced parole for traveling. But in essence, they would continue and they would be okay. Thank you, Aaron, for that clarification. So another question that we are often asked by individuals um, is, what if I have filed before retrogression, but my dependent family members were traveling abroad or the kids are studying abroad or taking care of, you know, their parent, whatever, my spouse and my kids are abroad, et cetera, and they are not able to return prior to the retrogression cutoff date. Uh, Kanya? Yes. So if your family members are not able to return prior to retrogression, they can only file the I-485 application once the priority date becomes current again. If the final action dates become current again after their return, then they can file their 485 application if they are in the U.S. If the final action dates are still retrogressed but the filing dates become current, they can only file, as we discussed before, if USCIS says they can use the filing dates to file. Now, it is important to keep in mind that when family members are outside the U.S., when the principal beneficiary files the 485 application, the principal beneficiary must maintain his hawker non-immigrant status, such as the H-1B or L-1, um, so that the family members may return on the dependent non-immigrant status and subsequently be eligible to file their I-485 application. If they do not continue on their non-immigrant status, then they will have no means on a dependent visa. Exactly, exactly. And in the scenario that Aaron just described a minute ago, if by some chance the priority date moves very quickly for a month, and the principal obtains the green card 485 approval, now the families are abroad. They can't return back on H1 or L, H4 or L2 status as dependents, and they can't enter um, because they haven't filed the 485. Now they have a problem, so the entire family will have to do consular processing, which could result in a one, two, three-year separation, two to three-year separation of family members stuck abroad because they did not file their 485 before traveling abroad. And that's why a lot of times we tell people, yes, it's a waste of airline ticket money to come rushing back. And some people I know refused to do that back in, back in 2007 and again in 2020. But if you don't, don't do it, it could be years and years of separation impacting the children's education if you have a job in the U.S. for the spouse. I mean, it could end up becoming quite a, quite a stressful situation. 
the next issue that we want to touch upon briefly is what happens if the employee is on H-1B or L status and has a pending 45 and now has to travel abroad. So there's USCIS policy guidance on this. Those who have an H and L visa certainly are allowed to travel with the H and L and return to the U.S., either apply at the U.S. consular post abroad, apply for the uh, H or L visa, and can continue the 485 application and continue working for the HRL employer. That's why it's called the doctrine of dual intent, to have both the non-immigrant and immigrant intentions concurrently without jeopardizing one or the other. And this also applies to their family members, their dependent members who are on H4 or L2, et cetera. They do not have to apply and obtain the advanced parole in order to travel to protect the pending 485 adjustment of status application. And But if they do use the HRL visa to travel, then it will actually help them to maintain their non-immigrant status until the 485 is approved. They can renew it. Um, but at present, due to the difficulty in obtaining visa appointments at U.S. consulates, sometimes employees uh, may resort to using the advanced parole to travel and return back to the U.S. But I think the visa appointments are becoming better. But, you know, those are things you don't control when you're abroad. If suddenly something goes wrong or there's backlogs, Etc. But right now they are fairly much faster, I think, with most, uh, you know, visa appointments at consular posts. Um, and I know there's been a revised legacy INS memorandum uh, on this issue. So, Aaron, will, can, may I have you briefly talk about that? Sure. So, so this is a bit of, in 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 my opinion, this is immigration USCIS or legacy INS making a bit of a stretch, and we have to keep that in mind. What they were trying to do was solve the issue of if a person comes in on HRL, the result would be that the 45 would not be valid any longer. So they said if you travel and come back on the H&L, as Sheila said, um, your 45 will remain valid. Similarly, if you travel back and forth on the 512L um, on the advanced parole, they wanted to do something to maintain the HRL status. So they were trying to give people that backup, that uh, redundancy in the process only it didn't work from an immigration perspective. So what they did is they said, instead of you being in HRL, if you come in and the validity period of your HRL status was not expired and you don't have an EAD, you don't have a work authorization, we're gonna nonetheless allow you to work as if you were in H1 or L1 status. So we're going to treat you as if you were an H1 or L1 status, not that you're in the status, but as if meaning that if your if your if your um, approval, your valid 797 is unexpired during that validity period, you can continue to work under the same conditions that you would have worked if you were in HRL status. Now this is good, but remember it's an it's an interim memo. It's a, it goes from a, it's a updated interim rule. It goes from a legacy memo that dates back over 20 years ago. And because it's a memo, it means it's subject to, to being tweaked, to being changed, to being misunderstood. So it's always better to say, I, I would be better off if I'm either coming in on the HRL or if I in fact have the EAD when I'm working so that no misunderstandings can take place that could affect your ultimate outcome of your green card. Now, remember, the government may mis misunderstand it. You may be able to respond and you may be right, but just having to go through that rigmarole may not be worth it. And, and the safer thing to do is to rely on either status or on the EAD itself. 
Thank you very much, Aaron. So I know we are always mindful of the time and try to wrap up our discussions between 30 and 45 minutes, and I think we're doing great on time. Uh, we're going to try to slowly wrap up. I'm going to ask, invite Kanya to talk a little bit about can we, because the question I always get asked in, during consultations, as I'm sure all of us do, is can you tell me what might happen, which dates will move, uh, whether you're an employer or an employee, but particularly I think employees and their families because they don't know, you know what's happening, how long the process will take. So, Kanya, what are the short-term predictions here? Okay. So the Department of Visa Bulletin, when they issue it every month, is issued based on the expected usage of immigrant visa numbers in the various family and employment-based categories. Generally, the immigrant visa numbers move forward at the start of the fiscal year, unless the Department of State believes that number of cases at U.S. consular posts worldwide or the I-485 adjustment of status applications filed and pending with USCIS could exceed the available immigrant visa numbers for the coming fiscal year, which appears to be the case for family-based immigrant visas, which explains why the family-based immigrant visa priority dates retrogressed in October uh, from September rather than advancing. Now, for the employment-based, there are 140,000 employment-based immigrant visa numbers are available each fiscal year under the law. If the visa bulletin did not retrogress, then all employment-based numbers would be used within a few weeks at the start of the fiscal year. This would violate the mandate of Congress regarding usage of immigrant visa numbers during the fiscal year because they have to be spread out over the year. Final action across most employment visa categories have advanced in October, reflecting that new visa numbers available for fiscal year 2024. Date advancement reflects an intention to keep visa issuance within quarterly limits in accordance with the law, whether it is a potential date advancement per year. However, actual date movements will be dependent on visa demand and issuance of fiscal year 2024. But because we saw a movement in October, there is hope that there will be further movement um, in the coming months. Fingers crossed. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Good. Very helpful. So just to try and wrap up, you know, most of you are familiar with H1L1 status many times, whether you're employees or, individ you know, individuals. I think we tend to be less uh, familiar with the entire permanent resident movement of priority dates, CISPA Child Status Protection Act, all of these very important issues for long-term planning for you as an individual or as an employer. But these are extremely important considerations for you, for your employees, for your coworkers and friends, just to keep up to date with the latest developments, uh, especially with regard to the Department of State monthly visa bulletin. And so I know we could continue our discussion, but for now, I think this is a good overview to help you understand how things are moving. So on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, on behalf of Aaron Finkelstein, Kanya Sanders, and all of us at the Muti Law Firm, we want to thank you for joining us this afternoon to listen to this discussion. And if we can ever help you, your family, your friends, your colleagues, please do not hesitate to contact us because our goal is to continue to educate, empower, and enlighten you. 
and help you during this complex and difficult and sometimes very stressful process. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful afternoon, and we look forward to continuing to helping you. Take care. Bye-bye. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.